0: Whether you're joining us from Webster, Rochester, online, watching on TV, wherever you're joining us, we're glad that you're here this morning. My name is Josh. I'm the Outreach Director Director here at Northridge, and I want to begin our time by talking about something totally non-controversial. We live in a polarized, chaotic world, and we all need something we can agree on, right? So here it is. The English language is a little bit of a mess. If you're a parent of young kids like I am, you know that this is true. It's so hard to teach them English because it seems like every time you get an idea down, there's an exception and there's more exceptions than rules and words are spelled ways but sound different. It's totally confusing. And, and one of the words that I think captures this idea most profoundly is the word love because the word love can mean so many different things depending on what you're talking about. The context determines what we mean when we say love. I'll show you with four examples. Listen to these four phrases and tell me they don't mean four totally different things with the same word. I love my hometown, I love my kids, I love my wife, and I love hot peppers. I mean four totally different things, right? The love I have for my hometown, it's built on nostalgia and shared history and community, and that's different than the unconditional personal love that I have for my kids. And the love I have for my wife is a little different than the love I have for hot peppers, right? I don't have to wear gloves to touch my wife. And when I kiss hot peppers, I regret it every time. We know it's four totally different ideas of love. And if you haven't caught on, we're talking about love today. We are in week two of a series about what we call the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5, a letter written by Paul, an early follower of Jesus. Take a look at Galatians 5.22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, what the fruit of the spirit of is is a list of characteristics of followers of Jesus. We're calling this series "marked by" because each of these are things that Christians should be marked by. They should define who we are. Now, last week Daniel gave a a great overview of the fruit of the spirit, and so for the next today and then additional eight weeks, we're going to be diving into the specific characteristics. And our whole church is doing this together. Kidsman is getting involved as well. And we shared a resource that I'd love to share again this week. We're we're putting out devotionals every week of the series to help you dig deeper. And if you didn't access that yet, you can visit Iwant.info, that website, and there should be a button there to get the devotional. Or you can text the word fruit to 585-312-3580. And then it'll return a link to you that you can click to access those devotionals. Um, But I'm starting again with love, the first characteristic in the list. And and why I kind of make fun of the fact that it's hard for us to understand love without context, we only have one word for so many different ideas, is because I think it's critical we get this correct. What does the Bible mean by love? And the reason for that is love is the defining characteristic. I would say it's the most important characteristic in this list. If we look at uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, He writes that love is over all of these characteristics. He has another list there, kindness, humility, patience. Love is over all of them, and it binds them together in perfect unity. So love is the glue that holds all the other characteristics of a follower of Jesus together. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the famous love chapter that's, you know, preached or read at so many uh, weddings. Paul boils down the Christian experience to faith, hope, and love. And he says that the greatest of these is love. And even here in Galatians, where we see Paul talking about the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, just a few verses earlier, kind of setting the stage for the fruit of the Spirit, he says that we are to serve one another humbly in love. And he sums everything up with one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so love is the first in the list because it sets the tone for the list. I think it would be safe to say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, period, period. And the fruit of love, a fruit of a spirit-filled love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest. Love defines the rest. And another reason it's first on the list and is a defining characteristic for Christians is because it's the defining characteristic of God. Scripture defines God. God is love. He's described as love. And so for the rest of this message, uh, I'm gonna work through some ideas, but there's one statement I wanna say early and I want you to hold on to throughout the message. I'll come back to it again and again. Why do we love? Our love puts God's love on display. So if you, if you sleep the rest of this time, and I would encourage you not to, but if you're gonna sleep the rest of the time, take that with you. Let that be the thing you walk away with. That as we love, why are we doing it? Because we are putting God's love on display Now, I could spend weeks, we could dive for weeks into all the biblical ideas of love. The original languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, have multiple words to get at all the different kinds of love, and we've got one that's supposed to cover it all. So we could spend weeks diving into this, all these different ideas, but we've got one message in the middle of the fruit of the Spirit, so I had to find a place to prune. And so what we're doing is we're going to walk through a list of characteristics of biblical love, just a few statements to help us understand what it really is And then that will serve as our our framework, our rubric. We can use those statements to ask ourselves the question, am I loving the way that the Bible describes? Am I putting God's love fully on display? And so to start, I would like to turn to Luke chapter 10. If you've got a physical copy of the Bible, or maybe you're looking at a Bible app on your phone, or you can follow along. We'll put the verses on the screen. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Now Luke, uh, it's called the Gospel of Luke, the Good News According to Luke, the Book of Luke. It's written by a man named Luke. Many books of the Bible are named after the person who wrote them. And Luke was a physician, he was a medical doctor, and he traveled around the Mediterranean, the ancient world, interviewing people who had interacted with Jesus, who had experienced Jesus' miracles, who had heard Jesus teach, and then he wrote down all of those accounts. So you can think of the book of Luke as an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus from the people who had spent time with Jesus. And so in chapter 10, where we're going to find ourselves, uh, Jesus is actually fairly late in his ministry, and he's on his journey to Jerusalem, the capital of the region, for the very last time. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die, and he's taken the long way there. He's kind of stopping in at towns along the way and teaching and encouraging people and, and doing more miracles. And so it's in that context that we find Jesus here. In verse 25, it says, "On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus, stood up to test Jesus. "Teacher," he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So it calls him an expert in the law. So this is a guy who knows the answers already, and he's asking Jesus to summarize everything they've seen so far with one idea. How do I inherit eternal life? This is that person in the middle of class who raises their hands in the middle of the lecture. Teacher's like, what do you you need? Oh, this is great, professor, but is this gonna be on the test? Like, what's what's the answer? Tell me what to fill in the blank with. So summarize it all into one idea. And Jesus is nicer than I am, and he's a good teacher, so he answers with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So what is the answer? To find eternal life. How do you inherit it? It's to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. There's two other accounts of this interaction in the other accounts of Jesus's life. And instead of posing it as, how do I inherit eternal life? The question is framed, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important command? And Jesus's response is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. And so when we think about biblical love and how we are expected to put God's love on display, we have to start here. Love is a command and a choice. Love is a command and a choice. Jesus was clear. Paul was clear. Everybody was clear. Love is given as a command. We are told to love. And if you're given a command, that means you have the ability to obey. You will choose to either obey or not. So love is a command, and we can choose whether or not to obey. So love is a command, and love is a choice. I think too often, we do one of two things when we think about love. We either convince ourselves that my love is totally dependent on my circumstances. I'm only going to love people who love me first. I'm only going to show affection to people who have earned it. My feelings dictate how I'm gonna respond. Or my love is totally out of my control. Um, I'm either in love or out of love. I either feel love or I don't. But in both of those situations, we're ignoring the fact that we can choose to love. Our love is not completely out out of our control. And I can prove it to you with a a simple exercise. Think about someone right now that you love deeply. Think about someone you love. Maybe it's a child, your parent, a roommate, a close friend, a spouse, whoever it is, someone you love deeply. You got someone? Okay, tell me, have you ever had a time where you love that person, but you just don't like them? You know what I mean? You're not feeling it. There's something going on. They, they said something. They did something. They, you know, your kids didn't do what you told them to do. Whatever it is, you still love them, but in that moment, you don't like them. But here's the thing. You don't stop the love just because in that moment, the like stopped, right? I don't just give up on my kids because they frustrated me in a hot moment, right? I still love them, and I still express my love, even if I'm not feeling it. Now, the challenge here is to live this out beyond our romantic attachments or the likability of a person or our most intimate relationships to extend that kind of choice and obedience to everyone. That's the idea here, to love because we're commanded and because we choose to obey. But here's the thing. I, I even hesitate to talk about Love is a choice and a command, because I, I, I don't want us to end there with that idea. It's got to be deeper than that. If I constantly have to convince myself to love someone, I'm constantly making a choice, okay, I've got to obey that command, I've got to love that person, I've got to obey, I've got to love that person. If that's where we are, then I would argue there's some rewiring of the heart that needs to happen, because we've got to get to a place where it becomes the natural inclination of our hearts. And so I would say the second thing about biblical love is that love is a well-worn path. Maybe you've heard it said, I've heard this analogy that that love is a habit we have to develop or love is a muscle we have to train and flex. But I would argue that both of those fall super short of what we're supposed to do. It's because those give the idea that I can increase my love, develop my love out of sheer willpower. If I just work harder, I'm gonna feel more love. And that's just not how love works, And so I use the image of a well-worn path. Let me explain a little bit of what I mean by that. In 1 John, a letter written by an early follower of Jesus, he talks about love at length. Let me start in 1 John 4.10. It says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us And his love is made complete in us. And so we start with a a perfect image of love, which is God's sacrifice, Jesus coming and dying for my past, present, and future sins. That is the ultimate act of love that we see in Scripture. And our love is, again, meant to put that love on display. Our love is supposed to reflect that love. And so it starts with us obeying. We choose to love. We obey the command. That's our part of the equation. But then what we're doing is we're inviting God, God, come and change me, transform me, move through me. And so that verse says he lives in us and his love, that love we're trying to display is now made complete in us. And so a cycle is built. I love, I obey, I obey the command. I choose to love people I don't want to love, but then God lives in me. And then His love is on display more fully, I understand his love more, it's made complete in me, and then I go and love again. And so there is a cycle built, there is a habit built, there's a path built, but it's not because of my work, it's because of God's work. I did my undergraduate education at RIT and there's this thing I saw all the time on campus, there's actually a number of paths at RIT, paved paths, that weren't there when I went to college 15 years ago. Because students would say, I wanna get from here to there, And the paths that I'm looking at are not going to get me there. So I'm going to walk right through this field. I'm going to walk right through those bushes. And so paths would get carved right through the grass, right into the thick. If you've been at a park, you've seen those paths. They kind of wind in different places where someone wants to get somewhere, and they're not taking the paths that are there. I'm actually proud of my alma mater for taking the time to pave all those paths over the years. They knew what was best, and so they did what the students wanted. But... um, But that's the idea I want here, of a path being worn. It's not training a muscle. It's not flexing, you know, a habit that we're developing. It's God working in us to make us love more fully, more reflecting of God's love. Another word for this process is the word that Daniel defined last week. The word is sanctification. It's a big word to mean that God is at work in us over time to make us look more like Jesus. So love is a well-worn path. Well, to carve a path, you've got to walk, you've got to take steps, you've got to move forward. So love can't just be an idea, it's not just a thought, it's not just a mental exercise, love is action. Number three, love is action. Every mom who wishes their adult children would give her a call knows what I'm talking about. Every son, every daughter who wishes their dad would just say I love you and I'm proud of you with his words knows what I'm talking about. Have you ever believed that you love someone or that you are loved by someone? But if you don't hear it, if you don't see it lived out, if you don't see action from it, is it really love? If it just lives in the head, is it really love? And I would argue it's not. Love is about action. It's about doing. And the greatest image of love we have, Jesus coming and dying, was about him in a physical body, dying on our behalf, taking action for us. In fact, if we go back to that dialogue about how to find eternal life where where the expert in the law asks Jesus, he tells him, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. The first command and the second is like it, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Those are not meant to be separate entities in which I figure out how to love God more and when I nail that down, now I'm going to go love my neighbor. It's all or none. It was meant to be a package. We express our love towards God in action towards our neighbor. They go hand in hand. It doesn't even make sense to try to obey one and then the other. They were meant to be together. If you look across Scripture at the times God talks about worship, we see time and again that God is not interested in my giant shows of religiousness or my acts of piety or my huge sacrifices to make me holy if I don't love my neighbor. In fact, Scripture goes so far as to say that those acts are actually offensive to him, if I haven't cared for, loved my neighbor. And so we can't just come here on Sundays and sing about our love to God and then not live it out tomorrow. That just doesn't make sense. That is not the love of God. And so what actions qualify as love lived out? What does it look like to act in love? Well, a working definition that has helped me is to add to the love is action idea by saying love is action for the well-being of another. What is best for someone else? What benefits someone else? What action leads to flourishing, to health, to joy for someone else? What brings the best for another? And I think this definition helps whether we're talking about the love we have for each other, but also the love that God has for us. Because again, the greatest act of love in history, Jesus coming and dying for us, that was done for our best to build relationship with God. It was done on our behalf for our greatest good. And so it's worth mentioning that as we express love to each other, the most loving thing we can do is help people understand that love that we're putting on display to point people towards God. Because it's in the context of a relationship with God, with our Heavenly Father, that we experience the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, all of that comes at its fullest in relationship with God. And so I would say the fourth attribute of love in Scripture is love points to Christ. Here at Northridge, we have what we call our outreach strategy. Maybe you've heard us talk about it before. It's pray, invest, invite, P-I-I, or pi squared. The math doesn't quite work out, but it's pi squared. Pray, invest, invite. And the idea here is to pray for people who are far from God, invest in their lives, and invite them to take a next step on their spiritual journey. And for some people, that next step might be to say, you know what? I'm going to follow. I'm going to trust Jesus with my life. I'm going to make him the leader of my life and the forgiver of my sins. But when we talk about Pi Squared, Pray, Invest, Invite, so often people get stuck on the invest step and and they push back a little. Is it really loving to invest in people just to tell them about Jesus? Is that really a loving act? And I would argue that all of Pi Squared is about love. Every step of that process is about love. And it isn't just in my relationship with people who don't know Jesus. It's in my relationship with anyone. Some of my closest friends that I know, love, and follow Jesus, I live Pi squared with them. I pray for them. I invest in their lives. I enjoy them. I spend time with them. And then I invite them to grow. I push. I help them love Jesus more and look more like him. And I want them to do the same for me, to be praying for me, investing in me, and inviting me to take next steps. I mean, you're not going to come up to me after the service and and tell me, I don't think you should invest in your kids the way you do. I think you're just trying to help them become functioning adults or whatever. You know what I mean? You're not going to challenge me on investing in my kids because you understand that I can both invest in and enjoy my kids and push them, encourage them to help them grow and develop to whatever God has for them. That's the same idea here, to encourage and love each other. And that's what we're doing when we're pointing people towards Jesus who don't yet know him. Our love puts God's love on display, and we want everyone to see and experience the fullness of the greatest love ever, the love that God showed us. I think we struggle sometimes with pointing people to Jesus. We struggle with this idea of investing because I think we do sometimes have a terrible reputation for being loving as followers of Jesus. The message of Jesus, his death on the cross, is the greatest act of love, the greatest message in all of time, all of history, all of reality. And yet, so many people who don't know Jesus would struggle to say that love is a core belief of who we are. Jesus challenged his followers on his last night on earth with this. He said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, our love, God's love on display shows people that we follow the one who loves them most. Jesus didn't say we'd be known for our opinions or our political affiliation, the size of our bank account or what kind of car we drive. He didn't say we'd be known for how much we memorize the Bible or how much we're winning a war on our culture. We would be known by our love, our love for one another in the family of Jesus and then our love to the world outside. That's what we are to be defined by. Because sharing the most loving message in all of the world in an unloving way or from an unloving platform robs that message of the love it is trying to communicate. And it's really hard for the world to believe in a God who loves them when they see his people don't. And so we have to be better, we have to do better. And where would we start? Well, I would encourage us to start with those four statements about love and use them as a framework, turn them into questions, and let's assess personally where each of us is in that journey on the well worn path. The first one was love is a command and a choice. Am I obedient? Am I obeying the command to love? Who do I need to choose to love? Number two, love is a well-worn path. Have I worn that path? Are the habits and patterns of my life suggesting that I'm growing in love, that that path is being worn more deeply? Number three, love is action. Do I take action in love? Who do I need to say I love you to? Who do I need to express love towards? And then number four, love points to Christ. Does my love point people to Jesus? Would they know that Jesus, the Christ is at the you know, center of the love I'm expressing? And do I share the love of Christ in a genuinely loving way? Take the list, wrestle through it, Develop your own questions. I've been forced by having to prepare this message, I've been forced to address these questions in my own life again and again and again. And I've come up with two things for myself and I would encourage you to look for your own. For me, there are people that I deeply love, people who invest well in my family and in me and I just don't tell them I love you. I'm, I'm not a naturally emotive person in my personal communication and I've got to work on telling people I love them. So mom and dad watching from Pennsylvania, I love you. I love you both. And then my sister-in-law who invests so deeply in our family and does so much for us. I never tell her, I love you. I do. I love you. And so that's an area I'm working on. Another area in my life to work on is sometimes I come off critical. Sometimes I'm a little bit of a cynic and I've got to be known for my love, not the way that I criticize first. And so that's something that I C is my blind spot, and I would challenge you, use these questions, find your blind spots. We each have different areas where we can grow in our love. And it matters, because again, this is the central idea to being a follower of Jesus. In fact, it says in 1 John that if you don't have love, you don't have God, you don't know God. You can't just say, I've heard this all before and I'm moving on to bigger ideas in my theology. This is the main idea, this is it, this is the one. And if you think you've outgrown this idea, then I don't think you know the vastness of the love of God that we're trying to display. You don't know how big God's love is. Because whether or not you've been following Jesus since Thursday or for 70 years, it doesn't matter. We all have more to do, further to go, to reflect the infinite love of God. Because the final reality, you get a bonus point in your notes, the final reality is love has no limits absolutely no limits. It knows no end. Paul gets to the heart of it in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we had done nothing to earn God's love, while we were separated from God, while we had nothing of value to offer the one who created everything of value, he died for us. That is the love that we are supposed to put on display. And we won't get it perfect in this life, but by his power, we give it a solid try because that is the love that we are putting on display. And it wasn't just talking about God's love. Jesus told it to us directly. He said in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There it is. Just like God, while my enemies are still my enemies, I love them. While they are still sinners, I love them. While other people persecute me, love them. Now there's two competing tensions I want to address briefly. The first is, isn't all this talk of love just an opportunity for Christians to become doormats, to be walked over by the world around us? And I I don't have an answer for you. We only have the example of Jesus and the command to love, and Jesus never fought for his own rights. He gave himself willingly, sacrificially for us. The only time Jesus fought back in anger was on behalf of someone else, not for himself. So sit with that, I don't know what to do with that. And the other side, I'm not saying give in to abuse. I told you love is about the well-being of another, that's love in action. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to separate ourselves, to give distance between us and someone who is hurting us. But we still have to love. It just might look different. So here's my question for all of you. Who is your enemy? When I say, who is your enemy? When I say, who frustrates you? I want you to think of someone category of person, a specific person, whatever, whatever needs to come to mind. Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Because we can all agree, um, mostly figuratively, but sometimes literally, our world is on fire, right? Our world is on fire. And hate and strife are the name of the game, but we are called to love. And that might mean obeying the command by the fact that you have to love Democrats and Republicans, you see what I did there? You have to love the person who has hurt you, the person who has said awful things about you. You are to love police officers and protesters, and activists. You have to love them all, no matter where you stand and no matter what you agree with. You have to love people who talk during movies that's my personal one but we have to love them all and my tendency I know my tendency is to stand off to one side and say Jesus is coming back and I'm going to hole up over here with the people who love me and the people I love and I'm not going to engage and I'm just going to wait until he comes back. Or I do the exact opposite. Let's be frank, I do both. But I stand on the other side and I, I find the people I agree with who are going to say the awful things about the people I don't like. And I'm not going to say the awful things directly. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to say that out loud. But I'm going to like it. I'm going to share it. I'm going to you know, say the awful things I want to say through someone else. But I find my team and we rally and we express the hate of the world. Because at the end of the day, Sometimes Christians are no different than anyone else, and we just want to watch the world burn. But that's not what we're supposed to be about. We have something different. We have the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that gospel doesn't just punch a ticket to heaven in the next life. And so we hide until that next life comes. No, the gospel radically transforms my relationships today and now. My relationships with my family, my friends, my coworkers, everybody. That's the love our world needs. Relationships transformed by the power of Jesus. And so what do we do? We roll up our sleeves. And we bring love, a love that will transform our world. And we express that love, we express that gospel until the flames go out. It won't happen perfectly in this life, but that's what we're called to do. Because the world is not a war that we are called to win. Jesus already won that war. We were commanded to love, and that's what we are to do. What the world needs, what we need, is a love without limits. God's love on full display. Let me read what Paul said, because he says it so well. He says it deeply. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's love. That's the love we have. That's the love we're putting on display for the world around us. So we can't just gather on Sundays and and express our love to God with an empty gesture during the week. No, we walk out of here full of love for God and full of love for our neighbor. So that's my challenge for me, for you, for all of us to reflect, to put on display the love of God in a rich, deep, bold way that will transform a world that desperately needs it. Let me go ahead and pray for us. God, thank you so much for sending Jesus, for demonstrating the greatest love in all of history. May we live it out. Let us accept it, and then let us live it out to our neighbors, our friends, our family, our parents, our coworkers, everybody around us to point people to you. In the greatest love that was ever expressed. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.